Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening uh, to Life on Side B. We are here for another episode. And today I am joined by Peter Valk. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining today. Yeah, glad to be here. So to give a little bit of an introduction to Peter, Peter is the director of Equip, a Nashville-based team of missionary consultants who help churches become places where LGBT people can belong and thrive according to a traditional sexual ethic. He is also a clinical mental health counselor that serves LGBT students at a local Christian university. Peter is motivated by the pain and beauty of his story and the stories of his fellow uh, of fellow Christian why can I not speak? <laughs> the stories of fellow gay Christians submitting their sexuality to the Lordship of Christ. You can learn more about his story at equipyourcommunity.org. Oh, great. You know, I've, I've, I'm so glad that we've even gotten to connect even just a little bit before this, but I'm excited to yeah. talk more now. Me too. Yeah. Although maybe your, your trouble reading that bio proves that I need to simplify our, uh, our mission a little bit. <laughs> no, it proves that I can't read. <laughs> it's it's, it's am, been a long day. Uh, that is a true statement. So to start off, as I do with everyone, can you share how you identify and what does it mean for you to live side B? Yeah. Um, so in identity, it depends on the context whether I'm talking to queer, non-Christian college students or conservative straight pastors. But typically, I call myself a, a gay, celibate Christian. I think that's, uh, that's probably what I would prefer to call myself in the privacy of my own diary. And 
yeah, what does that mean to me? Like, what does side B mean? And what does living side B look like for me? I think this has been in a healthy way prompted by some recent discussion uh, online about what exactly is side B and, and how much do we need to define that. And so for me, it kind of starts with a recognition that um, we're all broken and part of what my brokenness looks like, part of how the falls affected me is that I experience same sex attraction, uh, that I'm, that I'm gay in that way. Uh, I don't think when God first imagined me, he imagined me to, to be gay. And so I don't think that was God's intention for me yet. That, that is my story. I am gay. Um, and, and while certainly, uh, uh miracles happen, there is no formula for changing someone's attraction. Uh, for changing someone's sexual orientation, no proven combination of counseling or, or spiritual disciplines to help them make that happen. And so the reality is uh, people don't choose who they're attracted to. People don't choose to be gay. Uh, and there's no formula for, for changing it. And we also know that God, what I think a side B, a traditional sexual ethic teaching is, is that God calls all Christians to celibacy or Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex. But I guess more specifically on the question of of you know same-sex romantic and sexual activity there's no context in which god blesses in scripture or through the teaching of the church that god blesses same-sex sexual or romantic activity or to kind of make it even clearer i do think same-sex sexual and romantic activity are sins uh, in any context so because i'm a christian and because i believe how i know who god is is through the church and through scripture yeah that's that's the sexual ethic i submit my life to and steward my life according to. And so, yeah, we'll talk, probably talk more about it later, but for me, that looks like wrestling the question of, am I called to celibacy or Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex? Uh, and how do I do this well? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of with that, then, can you share a little bit of how you've come to where you are in reconciling your faith and sexuality? Sure. So I guess for me, a, a plain reading of scripture always seem to lead to the conclusion that God wouldn't bless gay marriage, wouldn't bless a marriage between two men or two women. And I was gay. And, you know, growing up, uh, all the gay people I knew were not Christian and all the, the straight people or all the Christians I knew I assumed were straight. And so I felt like I was stuck somewhere in the middle, probably not too different than many of the, the people you've talked to before and the guests you've had on. Um, but, you know, thankfully, I in college, I started sharing my story more with the uh, Christian fraternity and campus ministry I was a part of. And um, being gay became more normal in wider culture, which which I think is really great for the, the mental health of gay people. I want people to be choosing God and choosing to steward their sexualities according to a traditional sexual ethic, not out of fear or co coercion, but because they, they think it's true and beautiful. But that also me meant that I needed more than just a plain reading of scripture to be convinced that what uh, admittedly is a, is a cost, a sexual ethic that is costly for me, I needed more to be convinced that that was true. So for me, I mean, as an Anglican, uh, I have uh, a belief that uh, the church and scripture are the ways that we know who God is and how he thinks about these topics. And the church and scripture have consistently taught that God calls all Christians to, to, to celibacy or Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex. And I mean, yeah, I think people can get into the clobber passages and, and, and argue whether or not those make clear that same-sex sexual and romantic activity are, are sins in any context. But I think what is, is super clear is what God's best is for us. So, and then I think there's been my own experiences with same-sex romantic and sexual relationships. And they've made clear to me that that's not God's best for me. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I haven't experienced everything under the sun 
but but the the ways that I have kind of tested uh, God's promises and Satan's lies have confirmed that God's promises are true and, and Satan's lies are lies. So, and then I think as someone who like teaches and pastors, excuse me, teaches pastors to minister better to people like me, I've been forced to develop kind of some more winsome and nuanced understandings of how sexual orientation develops, what's the possibility for change, what's the morality of merely experiencing same-sex attraction, what's the morality of same-sex sexual and romantic activity, uh, what does God have to offer gay people, you know, all that. So, but yeah, I think through all that, I guess I've become more deeply convinced that how the church has historically understood God's wisdom on sexual stewardship is true. It's, it's logically true. It's, it's experientially true. Yeah. 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 I love what you said about how, you know, being gay, becoming more accepting has, has been able to help people, the, the mental health of gay people and how it yeah. leads us into the sense of, you know, it's a, you have to choose in yeah. the sense of how you're going to live out. Because I think many times the church gets afraid of the idea of LGBT people having to choose what path they're going to take, right. kind of wanting it to be an automatic forced decision to be celibate or be in a heterosexual marriage. But it really has to come down to your personal conviction that you I, I choose for myself this. It's the same thing that God gives each person. We have to choose according to the convictions that God puts on our hearts to follow him in the way that, that we feel is best. And so that choice is many times what leads us to a strong foundation of conviction to follow him. So I, I think that's so important. And I think we sometimes forget the importance of that choice. So. Yeah. Yes. Now, you know, you, as you've said, you live celibate. And for those who are listening, who may not be, because I, I have had a few people listen who were not necessarily used to the term celibate. Obviously, uh, celib celibate means that you abstain from all sexual, sexual relationships. Sure. Correct? So there's chastity, there's celibacy, there's abstinence, and there's singleness. Yes. And those four words are very different from each other. Uh, mm -hmm. or not very, but they're meaningfully different from each other. And they do get tricky in these conversations. Because at least historically, so chastity has meant that you are rightly stewarding your sexuality according to God's wisdom. And only enjoying sexual and romantic activity in, in a context that, are, that God has ordained and that are best for us, right? Mm -hmm. And then celibacy has historically been used to describe those who feel like kind of as described in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 that they have been called to the singleness for the sake of the kingdom and they have permanently given up romance, dating, sex, marriage yeah. for the sake of the kingdom. And that's mm -hmm. what the word celibacy uh, has meant historically. Yeah, and then abstinent means like refraining from sex. Um, but I think there's a, there's a difference there between abstinence uh, yes. and, and what the word celibate has meant to the church for a long time. So anyway, mm -hmm. that's how I use those words. I, well, I think that's a really good, important, important distinction. And yeah. it's also been surprising to me, I guess, just because being a celibate person, you get so used to the term. And then you forget when people come up to you and ask you, well, what does celibate mean? You're like, well, don't you know? At least that's what happens in my brain. And then I forget, no, I guess this is not a normal thing in culture. <laughs> and that kind of leads me to the next question that, um, well, actually, 
I, I, you know, so currently I'm reading Mark Yarhouse's Costly Obedience and, yeah. and loving it, by the way. And I thought it was really fascinating that where I'm at in the book at the moment, he asked side B people whether or not they agree with the term can, can people live sexually celibate lives while they have same-sex attractions? And while 99% of the people said Yes, they do believe that people can live celibate. There was three people that said no, they didn't believe so. And it kind of got me thinking that I really think that's a very common viewpoint in our culture that it's impossible to live celibate. And right. so I would love to, for you to speak into that, that idea that there's probably people listening who are like, that's impossible to live celibate. So how would you, how would you right. interact with a person who believes that? Yeah, and I don't just get that question from my non-Christian friends or my Christian friends who have a more progressive sexual ethic. Surprisingly, I think I get that most fervently from more conservative Christians yeah. who think that it's impossible to be celibate. That basically Paul was just could just do it because he was an apostle. Jesus could just do it because he was fully God. Mm-hmm. And you know, the passages in scripture were just, were just for a, a certain era of disarray in the church. But let's be honest, no one can really be celibate for a lifetime or get something close to being celibate for most of their life. So everyone just needs to get married and they need to get in a proper Christian marriage. Mm-hmm. I hear that more often from conservative Christians, straight conservative Christians, married straight conservative Christians than I hear it from uh, non-Christian friends or, or pro- Christians with a progressive sexual ethic. And I'm uh, not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and my challenge is, is, is often, because these are often also people who would call themselves kind of Bible-believing Christians. And so my response back then would be, let's read what the scriptures have to say about singleness together. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Jesus and Paul, in contrast to the way the Jewish people before Jesus came, uh, saw celibacy the curse. And marriage was the only good option for the for Jewish people. Yeah. Part of what Jesus did with his life was usher in celibacy as an equally beautiful and normative vocation and lifting up marriage and giving it even greater meaning than it had before. And he seems to say that everyone should consider and mm-hmm. that it might even be better in some ways. And I don't think he means as in holier. I think I think he's maybe talking about some kind of like practical benefit for yeah. the sake of kingdom work that the single people can do some kinds of kingdom work that parents can't because they're so busy raising kids. And that raising kids is a really important kingdom work. Uh, and then Paul seems to make clear, like he's basically uh, sitting home at night, praying and pleading with God that all of his best friends would be celibate because he thinks that would be better for them. And mm-hmm. he thinks the life of being celibate is pretty cool. And he hopes that God has that for all of his best friends. So yeah, I think scripture seems to suggest that that, that ought to be possible. And, and yet, what we have in like 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 is Paul confronting some challenges the church in Corinth was having with the people who were trying to, to pursue celibacy. Some of them doing it poorly, some of them doing it for the wrong reasons, some of them doing it excellently for the right reasons. And I don't think there's any different than what we see today in the church.
I think the other misconception that many times you hear from people regarding people who are celibate is how we find community, sure. especially when we're single. And so can yeah. you talk a little bit into how you found community as a single celibate gay man? Yeah. Well, and I think these things are tied because I think some of the reasons why other people in my life who have been skeptical of celibacy have been skeptical is they haven't seen it done well. Yeah. It, it's not, it's not that they don't believe in me. It's that they've all the other evidence they have is that they will, this will end poorly for me and they care deeply about me. And what they know is that marriage has brought the most beauty and happiness to their life. And they just want me to have the same. Um, and so I think that's like the real challenge of, uh, I mean, hopefully it's a cool opportunity that we have in this era uh, for those of us who are called to celibacy is to do it well and show our, 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 our friends who are parents that it can be beautiful so that they have the confidence to share with their children that it could be beautiful for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So how have I found community? Um, briefly, uh, I'm not, I'm not bisexual, so I'm not generally attracted to women, but I did date a couple of women in college and they knew about this part of my story. And I, in those dating relationships, developed a specific desire for some of them. So I knew coming out of college that if God was calling me to Christian marriage with a woman, that could work. Yeah. But it seemed to me that I should ask God what he wanted me to do as opposed to go just take what I wanted most. Mm. I don't know. It seemed to me based on reading Matthew 19 and first Corinthians seven, that it like the guy has a gift that he wants to give me and it would behoove me to seek to understand which gift it is that he wants to give. And so that started kind of a process of discernment for me of, of asking God that question. And, and, and at least to me, as I read scripture, it appears that there are kind of three options. First option was God is calling you to Christian marriage with a woman and I need to put some more energies into making that happen. Uh, and I don't mean becoming more straight. I just mean putting myself out there and going on some dates. Yeah. Um, or the other option was that God was actually calling me to completely close the door on Christian marriage and settle down into and commit to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. And then option three was God wanted me to leave both doors open and continue discerning. And within about two years of, of discerning that, it became pretty clear to me that God was calling me to shut the door on a marriage and to settle down into and commit to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. But that, there still was the question of, well, how am I going to do this well? Uh, and for me, the biggest question is, how am I going to find community? Like, how am I going to meet my intimacy needs in healthy ways? So I, I sat down and uh, met with uh, the pastor at my church who I've been having a lot of healthy conversations with, a guy named Thomas McKenzie here at Church of the Redeemer Anglican in Nashville, Tennessee. And I said, hey, how am I going to do this well? And he responded and said, well, uh, monasticism has been the most common way that celibate men have found family historically. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean it's the best way, but it's been the most common. It's been the greatest source of evangelism in the church historically. It's been the greatest source of theology in the church historically. It's been the greatest source of charity and serving and healing our city in the history of the church. So maybe you should check it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> can, and, you, can you share a little bit of what is monasticism for those who, who might not? Know them. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you define it, but that I would say monasticism um, are, are a group of men or a group of women or perhaps even men and women living in a community together, but who feel called to celibacy, 
and but still believe they need a family. They need a way to order their common life. And so they joined this this house, this 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 organization, this this monastery that lives under a rule of life. It has essentially like a, a constitution for their group yes. of people and rules under which how they 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 live their lives. And often they have a common uh, they have common rhythms as a family of, of prayer and, and devotion and, and silence and meals and recreation. And they often have a common mission, kind of external mission that might be praying from inside of their monastery. They might be going outside of their monastery and teaching in schools or serving the, the poor and needy, or it might be running an orphanage within their, their monastery. So there's lots of things that can look like, but it, it, to me, it's, yeah. you know, it, it's been a place for celibate men to order their lives together so they can have structure and rhythms in order to do really maximize the kingdom work that they can do with their singleness. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So that was his suggestion. I mm-hmm. do something we do. We consider something like that. So that was like two and a half, three years ago. Fast forward. I looked around and there was nothing like that happening in Nashville. And I, but I'm, I know that God has called me to this city. So we got together a group of guys and asked them to join us m- weekly for dinner and for prayer and to read this book about Christian discernment. And we could use that context to ask God lots of questions, but at the very least we wanted every guy to ask God the question, God, are you calling me to marriage or celibacy? And if you're calling me to celibacy, might you be calling me to help start a monastery in Nashville in which we do that together? And then seven, eight months ago or six months ago, two of us, made our first commitment to what we now call what we call the Nashville family of brothers. And we continue to meet weekly with guys who are considering this possibility for themselves. We uh, live in a home together. Those of us who have made commitments and do daily and weekly rhythms together. Uh, and we've got guys uh, outside of Nashville who are interested in this. Um, some of whom just visited for the a long weekend and, and, and whom we're excited about some of them moving to our city to join our monastery here in the next six months or so. So yeah, the Nashville Family Brothers, our mission is to offer family to celibate men in Nashville for God's glory. I want to, if I, if I can, I want to break that mission statement down because there's a lot in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one, the first two words are offer family. And I think that's, and the name is the Nashville Family of Brothers because I think we need family. Historically, when monasticism has not portrayed itself as the first reason for it being family, and they often don't describe what they're doing as family. But if you visited a monastery or you read any depictions of monastic life, even a thousand years ago, they were doing family together. Like this is what monasticism has always been, a way for celibate people to find family. And we think we're made for family, right? I mean, there's, there's family in the Trinity and there's family between God and the church. If we're made in the image of God, then we're made for family. We need it. And family in the way that Jesus defines it, the, the family is the, the, for a believer, is the group of Christians that you do life with and embody the gospel for each other and together for the world. So yeah, we're here to offer family to celibate men. We're a monastery, a single sex monastery for men committed to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. And, and that, that historical definition of celibacy, abstaining from dating, romance, or sex, marriage. In Nashville, that's our context, that's the city. And then for God's glory, when Paul and Jesus talk about singleness, in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, they don't say, they're not inviting people into singleness for the sake of not having any dependence so you have more money available to buy the things you want. It, it, it doesn't say singleness for the sake of 
having a lot of free time so that you can become the world's best chess player or singleness for the sake of being able to avoid human intimacy and interaction and avoid being, you know, the ironing, sharpening iron and the sanctification of dealing with other people's craftiness and them dealing with our craftiness. It's singleness for the sake of the kingdom. So we should be using our availability in singleness to do kingdom work and primarily to do kingdom work that our married friends with kids can't do because they're raising kids Mm -hmm. because they're doing that important work. You know, use the time and energy we would have used for raising kids if we were married and use that instead for work that those uh, parents with kids can't do. And for us, kind of what our primary mission as the natural family of brothers, our mission to our city is actually to model celibacy in our churches, to teach our churches about the theology of celibacy found in scripture, and to help, uh, God willing, in a future generation, help every young Christian in Nashville discern whether they are called to celibacy or marriage with someone of the opposite sex. That's our mission to our city. It's kind of a work of discipleship. And it's also a work of multiplication. I mean, imagine the difference that would be made if 5 to 10% of Christians in Nashville in the next generation accepted a call to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. And then they use that availability to do uh, uh, works of, of kind of healing uh, poverty and, and racial tension and, 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 and xenophobia and all these kinds of things in our communities. And, and when people ask, why are you sitting your life for these things? They said, Jesus. Imagine how many people would come to know Jesus from that. Yeah. So ultimately what we're doing is a, is a work of raising up the next genera- in the next generation a powerful minority of Christians committed to singleness for the sake of the kingdom so that there can be revival in our city. That's really good. You know, I, I think it's so important, as you were saying, that as we talk about celibacy in, you know, of, among LGBT people, we almost talk about it as something that's forced upon us. But we, we, also, we always have to remember that I think we don't talk enough about the importance of celibacy for all Christians. That this is not something that only LGBT people need to be dis- like, you know, discerning whether or not I'm called to celibacy or marriage. It's something that every Christian should be discerning. And I think some, many times in the church, we let straight people off the hook saying, oh, they don't need to discern this. They're automatically going to get married. But one of the things I love that's come out of, for instance, my discerning of celibacy has actually been some of my straight friends have been, you know what? Actually, they've, they've said to me, you know what? Maybe I'm called the celibacy. It's possible, you know? And yeah. sometimes I've actually wondered this, don't have any proof, but I've wondered that maybe some of our, some of our issues with the divorce rate is because people who are actually called to celibacy are actually getting married when they weren't called to. Sure. Again, don't have proof, just a thought. But yeah, I, I think at the very least, oh, go ahead. No, yeah, I was just saying is that I, I really, I love that mission of helping people discern whether they're called to celibacy or marriage and the, the impact that that can have in our community. Yeah, there's a, uh, I think it's a G.K. Chesterton quote that says, when the monks return, so will marriage. Mm. And what he's getting at with that is this idea that celibacy and marriage were supposed to be two complementary images that together give a fuller picture of who God is. And so if either is missing, 
if celibacy is lifted above marriage or more common than marriage, or if marriage is lifted above celibacy or significantly, vastly more common than celibacy, then we're, then it, it, it doesn't just harm the one that's kind of lower in terms of prevalence and, and value. It actually hurts the one on top as well. Mm-hmm. And because, uh, yeah, and I think you're right because maybe a lot of people who get into marriage default into marriage instead of carefully discerning whether they're called to marriage with a full understanding of how difficult and beautiful it will be. And then with a kind of uh, clear eyes, full hearts, I know how hard and beautiful this is going to be. And I'm still go for yeah. this important vocation, uh, this important mission in the church of, of being married and raising children for the sake of the kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I didn't get to go to your workshop this year at Revoice, but I did the previous year. 2018. And I really love how you talked about that, that we need to have these two equal as equal options for our communities in the church, marriage and celibacy Mm -hmm. side by side in the ways that we, in the ways that we can complement the way that we reflect God and reflect him in the world. And the way, you know, there's things that single people can do there's things that single people can do that just married people can't do they don't have the ability to do it in the same way there's things that married people can do that single people just can't do and and that's part of the diversity and the beauty of of the church You know, we've already done two episodes. Our first two episodes were on intentional community and communal living issues. Very and, cool. you know, very much kind of related to the kind of your community, you know, in similar ways. But I had some people write into the podcast after listening to Meg and Melinda talk about their communities. And they didn't understand really the difference between simply having roommates and living in some kind of community with a covenant, you know, like that they were talking, they couldn't understand. So they just have roommates. Sure. And so can you share a little bit about like the differences and similarities of where you see that? Like, where is it the same as, Hey, I have roommates and where is it different from that? Yeah. I think the differences are in the the depth of commitment and the length of commitment. Mm -hmm. Let me talk about the, like the depth. First. Yeah. So uh, I uh, have had roommates that I enjoyed fellowship with, that I grabbed dinner with, um, that we all read Bonhoeffer's Life Together, and then the next four nights we we all prayed together every night before we went to bed, and then the fifth night someone had something to go to, and the rest of us were tired, and then by the sixth night we all forgot that we made the commitment. Um, so I say, so there was beautiful things about that and it didn't last or it wasn't as, as deep. Um, but in the natural family of brothers, we have rhythms that we have committed to doing. Um, and because it's not just a kind of informal, oh, we're roommates, so let's do this with each other. But it's a, in order to be a part of this family, this is what we do. And it's more formalized. 
Um, I mean, and, and let me back up for this for a second. Uh, all married people do this. They have a rule of life, an unspoken rule of life, but they have a rule of life under which their family operates. The only difference is when you try to put together, even with two like adults in a, in a house, you're going to have some tension because we're going to have some disagreement about what our family rules are. You put more than two adults in a house, you put 10 males or females or male and females in, in an adult, male and females in a house. And you need kind of a little more clearer agreement about what exactly our common life is going to look like in order to do that efficiently. So in the National Family Brothers, we have daily prayer, weekly confession and accountability, a monthly prayer and worship gathering, an ecumenical gathering uh, on a Saturday night to welcome the Sabbath. We do. We have a schedule for what holidays we're going to do together. We have a schedule for what vacations we're going to do together. We have a commitment to a shared mission work in our city. And so that's really different than my experiences when I merely had roommates or had roommates who were Christians and we did some Christian things together. But this is a lot more formalized. And then because we seek to be family, we're moving from merely being rugged individuals who happen to live together for however long is convenient. And instead, we're trying to become a, a family, which means becoming dependent on each other in healthy ways, which I think also brings me to the other difference. Uh, between kind of my roommate situations versus intentional Christian community or, or even a monastery. And that's the length of the commitment. And I, I personally think this is even more important. The healthiest monasteries historically have been one, ones that included vows of stability, which are basically vows of you're my family and I'm staying. And we see how that's obviously healthier in marriage <laughs> um, when they stay. Yeah. And I surprise us that that's not too different when it comes to a family of celibate people. So yeah, I mean, for most roommates, like you're only guaranteed until the end of your lease. Or even then, the person could leave and sublet to someone else. But in the National Family of Brothers, we eventually make lifetime commitments to be family for each other. And this makes a huge difference. We talked earlier about, you know, if there's family in God's family in the Trinity and there's family between Christ and the church, then, then I think, and particularly for those out there who are Anglican and Eastern Orthodox Catholic, they're going to get this. But, but, uh, but even for all of us, family is, a, is supposed to be a sacrament. It's supposed to be this ordinary thing that helps us understand something deeply mysterious and beautiful. Yeah. So I think our human experience of family is supposed to help us better understand the beauty of the love and God's family and the Trinity and that we've been invited into by Christ's work on the cross. And one of the things that's really important about that family, right? If human family is just an image that's pointing back to the family and God's family, God's family is permanent. That love in God's family is, is perfectly faithful and never ending. And so it seems like, for the sacrament of human family to be true, for it to truly accurately point back to the thing it points to, it also needs to be permanent. And in some ways, I wonder if we experience family that is broken, at some level of our soul, it tells us a lie that, we, that God's love may break. And I experienced this mm. in, some, in, in, some, in some ways that are common to a lot of, of those of us who are, who are single later in life. I've experienced the, the revolving door of friends having close friends in college and after college and learning to depend on them in healthy ways. You know, I remember having conversations with my, my therapist and them challenging mm -hmm. me. You've got to meet your intimacy needs in healthy ways. And, 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 you know, who do you have around me? You, you can, you can trust. And how, how can you ask for what you need? Those are the right questions, right? But then they left. They got a better job in the new city.
they yeah. got married and they they moved down down in another neighborhood and they were too busy um we had a disagreement and and because there was no commitment we weren't forced to work it out and i'll be honest my heart just can't take it anymore i, I can't yeah. take connecting deeply with people and having that broken uh, and it's, in some ways, I've got some great people around me right now, now in my life, and I'm, I know technically they are loving me well. My heart will not let me receive it unless I know they're going to be around, unless I know this love is safe. And what safety means, at least as I've talked to my therapist, what safety means for my heart is I'm not going to come to depend on this in a healthy way and then the bottom fall out. And I think that's what God made us for. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't make us to connect deeply with people. And then for those, those relationships, those friendships to be divorced, whether that be marriage or whether that's friendship, it's certainly not going to be what the new heaven and the new earth looks like. So, yeah. So I really, really struggle uh, in this. And, and I think one that the, one of the big difference makers between merely roommates versus an intentional Christian community, or particularly a monastery in the historical sense is the, the depth of the commitment, the kind of daily rhythms and weekly rhythms you do together and the length of the commitment. Uh, are we really committed to each other? Do we really have something similar to a vow of stability or what we're calling it in our, in the natural family brothers of, of the promise of family. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so that's what we do. Um, but, but I want to, I want to just, uh, I want to balance this a little bit with maybe clarifying also the ways we aren't like a typical monastery. Uh, our, our, our house is not our primary place of worship. It's, we don't have jobs in the monastery. We all have jobs out in the, the regular world, some of them in secular jobs, some of them religious jobs. And our home is not a place of isolation from our, our churches and friends. We actually require every guy in the natural family of brothers to be committed to the mission and the community of his local church. And the doors of our monastery are always open to our extended friends and family. And we're actually hoping that our monastery ends up being the seed for a larger experience of intentional Christian community of celibates and married people in Nashville. Uh, we've already got at least three parents and their kids who are seriously considering moving in in the same neighborhood as us and, and doing some, some rhythms together as a bigger family. So, so yeah, I think that clarification is helpful. Um, yeah. What, you know, what does our monastery look like exactly? Absolutely. And that's interesting because well, first of all, before we get into that, I wanted to say I totally understand about the heartbreak thing and, and the, the revolving door of friendship because it's hard as a celibate person, especially in a culture like the United States where there is no commitment. There is no commitment of people being in your life. And, and it can get distraughting of like, will these people be here in a few years? You know, And that's where we, we have to have those people who are committed to do life with us for a lifetime. You know? Yeah we all need lifetime commitments and marriage cannot be the only solution for that need at all. Yeah. And I want to sympathize with my married friends that I think it's some of the reasons why they also are afraid to invest too deeply in friendship. Absolutely. There, you know, married people need this just as much as celibate people yeah. need to know that our friendships will last. Yes. Um, and, and personal opinion is lifelong membership in a local church and living in the same community has historically been the way that the church did it um, mm-hmm. and how we found stability in our friendships. It's very, a, lot of, a lot about that is very un-American, but in some ways, what we're doing with the natural family of brothers is just a life raft. Uh, yeah. Maybe a life raft until the second coming or hopefully a life raft until the church in Nashville actually starts to do 
what it was supposed to do and live how it was supposed to live. Exactly. And I think that that also might be a whole reason why we see so many marriages fall apart is because we put too much pressure on what marriage is supposed to even fulfill in the lives of married people, that that's not your only source of committed community. If your only committed community that's going to be in your life forever is the person you're married to, you are putting a lot of pressure on that one person. You need other, even married people need other people that are committed to their lives. Now, you said that there are some, you know, families like parents with children who are thinking of moving into your neighborhood to kind of do some life rhythms with you guys. But in your house, I think the one thing that's interesting about your guys' life, because you model it more after a monastery, opposed to like Meg and Melinda, who we heard about in their intentional communities, where it's made up of married people or single people altogether, yours, your community is, uh, has a definition of, is um, brought together by a definition of celibacy, excluding dating and romance, if I'm correct. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you can, can you share a little bit of why you wanted to bring this primarily celibate people together. And I guess, I guess we've kind of a little bit talked on there, but if we have, you don't, we can go on to another question, but I thought that that was sure. an interesting distinction. Right. Um, I think part of it is so, so many of us who are single later in life have, have felt this sense that if, if, if we're in a relationship with someone, but they are more deeply in a relationship with another person. We feel some insecurity in our, in our friendship. Mm -hmm. And, and that what we're feeling there is, is, is scarcity, right? We're feeling the reality of the fact that this world is broken and not enoughness is part of what it means to live in this world now. And that, that feeling sucks, right? But from a counseling perspective, that feeling leads our hearts to hesitate to step in fully. And so I think why we feel like we particularly need a family of celibate men is that we need to know uh, that we, uh, to, to borrow a phrase that's, that's, I think, first meant for marriage, but I think it's appropriate to kind of uh, appropriate here in some ways. Uh, we need to know that we are equally yoked to everyone else in our family. Mm. And a lot of that is about, we don't want to feel left out. That keeps us from being left out. Right. If, if what God wants to invite us into, into the, as he's inviting us into the Trinity, into his family, is to have belonging and to not be less than and to have a place and to never be left out, then our families need to model that as well. And I think, to be honest, that's some of the reasons why we go with the definition of celibacy that we have. I mean, that's historical. That's what celibacy has meant for 2000 years, abstaining from not only sex and marriage, but also dating and romance. But it also keeps people from being left out. Because if we had guys in our monastery, and, and I'll make clear, we've got a, a mix of guys in our monastery uh, and who are interested in our monastery who, who are gay, who experience same-sex attraction, and who don't. So there's, there's a mix of that going on. But if, if there were two guys in our monastery who, who were gay, who developed kind of a more special, romantic, exclusive relationship with each other, we're afraid that the result of that, if enough pairing happens, is that some people get left out. Mm-hmm. That's not what family should be. Yeah, Family doesn't leave people out. And so not only is our definition of celibacy based on what it's meant historically and, and what how scripture seems to point to what celibacy means, but also the practical consideration of if our goal is for people to have belonging and not be left out, then pairing up 
is the enemy of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, I get that. That that makes that makes sense. Why then, you know, it would exclude dating and romance because of the type of community you're wanting to build, and yeah. it would go, it would just go against that very goal. Yeah, in but but let me be clear as well. That doesn't mean we're like living in fear of deep intimacy with each other. Um, yeah. Like I think what family needs is is deep emotional intimacy and meaningful physical intimacy and meaningful spiritual intimacy. It it's, it it just means you're doing that with everybody. You know, it means yeah. just giving hugs to one guy in the family. I'm giving hugs to everybody in the family. Exactly. Um, or whatever that healthy physical touch looks like. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then, you know, in this community, as you know, as believers, our our community what brings us together is Jesus, you know, obviously yeah. and our, and our, and our faith in Christ. That's even in the first church, that's the very thing that created those unique communities of Christians that bonded them together. And it's the very same thing that you guys are trying to revive, which I love. Mm. And so how do you feel your community points you back to Jesus? Mm. Would you say? Yeah. It's also, this is, this is a really great, great question. Because I guess I left out part of the story earlier for how, how this part of how this monastery came about and what was happening around the same time in my life. As I've discovered, uh, having friends, uh, having conversations with lots of my Christian friends, I'm not alone in this experience that I've, I've felt a lot of distance in, in my personal relationship with Jesus for the past eight years. It, it, it's, it doesn't seem to be how I was promised it would be. Uh, the way that some of my friends describe a closeness to Jesus and experiencing intimacy with God, that's been absent for a long time. And we can, they can have a lot longer discussion about what should our expectations be about intimacy with, with Jesus and what is healthy. Uh, I'm really thankful for the pastor of my church, Thomas McKenzie, because as I was going through that period of my life where where it was most painful and I had the least peace about this like distance. He pointed me to St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila and their work on these questions. And they seem to suggest that actually what is normal for most Christians is we kind of start our relationship with Jesus in a honeymoon phase where we, uh, we experience this closeness with Christ really easily. But then God wants to mature our faith. And part of what maturing means is weaning us off of sweet milk and and moving us to spiritual meat. And what that often means for most people is a lifetime of feeling at a distance. And then a few lucky of us get to get back to this kind of almost like euphoric experience of, of union with Christ in this lifetime. But most of us don't get that until the next life. So, you know, I'll just say anecdotally, all the Christians that I do life with, when I ask them, hey, be honest with me. Like, how was your relationship with Jesus? Like, how do you, what did you used to feel in that when you were in college or high school? And what do you feel now? Most people I know feel this distance. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I think the church would benefit from being honest about that. Yes. For me, one of the metaphors I've used is I felt like I was told to show up at this date spot with God. And I showed up day after day for years and he never showed up. Got stood up, and it's just too painful to go back to the date spot now. Mm-hmm. So that feeling sucks. And so, in the midst of this, I was having a conversation with my pastor, and, and he was sharing, "Well, how is it that we connect with God?" Right? And he said, 
he said, well, communion, the Eucharist is the way we connect with God, but really in a metaphysical way. He said, he said it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's fine if you feel emotionally connected to Jesus through the, the Eucharist, but that's not really the point, and that's not, that's not a promise. So, if you're, mm-hmm. so you, know, you, you, pro- you might not feel emotionally connected there. Uh, the scripture is a way to feel connected to God, but, but he said, but the scripture was written first for a people in a time and a place. Right. And it can and it can feel like it's not written specifically for you. It can feel it can feel not as intimate. And for some of us, particularly who've been in more kind of evangelical faces, the Bible was used as the way that we ought to have a better relationship with Jesus. You know, you're not feeling close to Jesus. We'll read the Bible more. Uh The Bible has become the thing that reminds us that Jesus is at a distance and it's because we're broken. So that's sucky. You know, nature maybe is the way that God reveals his beauty to us. But again, again, that's not a unique way. It doesn't feel like it's uniquely for me. Yeah. Um, what are some other ways? Uh, I can't remember the others at this point. Uh, oh, worship was another. But he's but the the fifth one he he mentioned. I can't remember the other two. Uh, the other one. The the fifth one he mentioned was. But he said the body of Christ is maybe the primary way and the most common way that we're going to experience God through other Christians, through other believers. In many ways, maybe you can imagine the body of Christ as a sacrament. Oh, baptism was the other way that we could know. But again, that's also more metaphysical. The body of Christ is a sacrament. It's an ordinary way that we come to know the mystery of God's love. And for me, that feels like the only way I'm going to reconnect with God is by experiencing this beauty in my love and relationship with other Christians that the only way I can understand how this is so good is that God is on the other side of that trying to like reach out to me through it. Um, Mm. And so this is a very long-winded way of saying how does this community point me back to Jesus? I need family to convince me that God is, exists and that he loves me. And these men daily convince me that God is real and he loves me. Like they're the way I hold on is family. So yeah, they're really important uh, to my life. Uh, and yeah. that's why I need it so much. I saw some stats the other day about how, uh, single people were more likely to doubt that God exists and less likely to recover from, from a bout of, 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 of doubt. Mm. So they're wow. more likely to leave the faith because they doubt that God exists. And, but that shouldn't be surprising to us if we understand that one of the primary ways that we experience God's love and that God proves to us that he is real is through the love we experience in a church. Mm-hmm. and to family but it's been hard for people for single people to take hold of that so yeah so this is you know a big reason why the natural family of brothers is so important to me is that it is an experience of family that convinces me that god is real and he loves me wow absolutely you know i i think that's really important because you know there are many ways to connect with god and and i also love what you said about i i think sometimes the church needs to get real about sometimes the ugliness of what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus of, and when I mean ugliness, I mean that sometimes it just doesn't look like sunshine and flowers all the time. And it doesn't look like you're on a honeymoon, you know, that it gets difficult and there's times of yelling at God and there's times of not feeling close and, and, and many times those times can be long periods. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, community is one of those constant things that can be pointing us back to Jesus. So yeah, that is really a yeah. great thing. If we're honest, the Psalms 
are very different than the testimonies of converts, new converts. Mm -hmm. Conversion is beautiful and hearing early testimonies are beautiful, but I think there's a certain richness to the Psalms and what the Psalms ultimately is, is an honest testimony of David's faith uh, and and ultimately Jesus praying uh, through David. that that they model something really honest and and rich and and complicated and painful yeah great absolutely thank you so much for for talking about all of this i think it's it's been really great uh before you know is there anything else that you would like to share before we go that we haven't covered so far hmm. um i mean one if there's any people out there particularly dudes all the ladies as well. Uh, I would love for some ladies to move to Nashville and start the Nashville family of sisters or start some yes. family of sisters in whatever town you're in or, or the, the, the ladies who are listening to uh, listening here are, are in. But uh, yeah, if you're, if you're a guy out there and, and you think you might be called to celibacy or you need to be safe to discern whether you're called to celibacy or marriage, I'd love to talk more to you. Nashville may be a place for you to find that. We, we move cities often for for much less important things than finding family yes uh, so it, it it shouldn't be odd to us that we might move cities for family so yeah i'd, be lo- I'd love to grab uh, have a phone call with with anyone who'd love to hear more about the national family brothers and what we're doing or if someone wants to start something similar in their city and wants to mm-hmm. wants to learn with us and wants to collaborate on how we do this well um i think we need more of these things in our cities and in our churches and maybe that's the last thing I'll say is this life is painful. Uh, listen, everybody's life is painful, but, but it, but it, our churches have, I think just organically become optimized for marriages um, yeah. and for nuclear families. And so it's, it's maybe even in some additional ways hard for single Christians. And I think there's definitely times when I'm tempted to say celibacy is just a call to suffering. Mm. for the sake of being righteous Mm. and it is not i i don't think that was ever god's intention for singleness for the sake of the kingdom was you're just going to be lonelier but you'll please me with your 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 sexual your with your chastity um and maybe you'll share the gospel with a couple extra people and so i just urge anyone out there who's who's single to don't give up hoping for more. Mm-hmm. Hoping your life can be thriving and deeply beautiful and satisfying. It's possible. You're going to have to probably build it for yourself. It's going to be hard. But you can do it. I mean, this Nashville Family of Brothers didn't exist three years ago. And it's not because any of us here in Nashville are superhuman in any way. We just said we can't settle for less than beautiful in this life with Jesus. And we have to do it together. We looked back in the past to see how seldom people have done it before. And then we tried to go imagine it for a new time. So I would encourage everybody out there listening who needs something similar to go, go do it, go make it. First of all, I am stealing that phrase. We won't settle for less than beautiful. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one. That's awesome. Yes, absolutely. For everyone listening, as Peter said, I'm going to have his contact information in the episode description. 
If you're interested in learning more about the Nashville family of brothers, you'll be able to contact him through there. Or if you just want to talk to him about what it was like to start a community, if you want to start one in your own community, that would be great. So all of that information will be in the episode description. And thank you again so much, Peter. Really enjoyed all of this talking with you. I just have enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more over the past two few months. It's yeah, awesome. it's it's been it's been fun. Yes, and, I mean, me and uh, the other guys here, the National Family Brothers, were we're definitely honored to be able to share share this. And yes. um, yeah, so hopefully uh, the, sometime uh, I can get up to Nashville and hang out. Yeah, it'll be cool. I mean, we've had some fun ideas from some of the brothers here about what our home is going to be like eventually, and what some of our rhythms are going to be. So I, I hope it's uh, I hope eventually it becomes a place of vacation and retreat for lots of our friends across the. The U.S. and farther. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Really appreciate it. Be on the lookout for our next episode. We will continue this conversation on friendship. And be sure again, wherever you listen, to also just give a review to the podcast. The reviews that you give help uh, the podcast get more visibility so that more people can see it. This has been really important. We've had a few people who had never even learned about side B, had never learned about celibacy or mixed orientation marriage before they learned about it through this podcast. So be sure to give a review and be able to help more people find this so we can continue this conversation on faith and sexuality and, and gender. Also, if you like the intro music from this episode, it comes from the song Wondrous Love off the new EP called Traveler's Psalm by the band Murphy DX. They're great. I've been listening to this EP like all week and love it. So check it out on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you listen to your music. It's great. Uh, So thank you, everyone. Have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.